What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Today, I'm your host for the ad space. This is Austin, and I'm riding solo for the ads today. I completely forgot to sit down with one of the guys and do these ads during work hours. So here I am, after hours, by myself, recording these for you guys. So we'll jump right into it. Um, our first sponsor is one of our OG sponsors, and that's Triarch Systems. Um, Triarch's been with us since the beginning. There's really not enough good things to say about the guys and gals over there, as well as the equipment that they build and make for us and all of you. Um, I've been really fortunate to use a lot of their weapon systems at uh, the courses that we teach, gunfighter pistol, gunfighter carbine, and a few of the others of the sort. And I got to say, it's the best system that I've ever used. Um, you know, it takes a beat and keeps going. And I know a lot of the guys over uh, on training side with Raul feel the exact same way. So uh, head over to triarchsystems.com, use code FIELDCRAFT, and that'll save you 5% on your next build. And next up is Haven Tents. So Haven Tents is a really cool sleep system. And one of the really big things that you know caught me uh, by surprise was that the Haven Tent comes with everything that you need. And it, it includes the hammock body, the rain fly, bug net, all the straps and stakes that you'll need and the guy lines. So you can actually string this up like a normal hammock or you can stake it down like a tent. And I actually stayed in one of these uh, Haven tents while I was in Moab at the Easter Jeep Safari with Mike Hernandez and a few of the guys. Uh, shout out to our friends, Casey Highlights. But um, it was awesome. I strung it up between uh, actually in a picnic area under the patio. I strung it up between two of the poles and slept like a baby. And it was actually uh, pretty chilly that night. Dropped down to the upper 30s. And I was super comfortable. I got a little chilly just because I didn't even use my sleeping bag inside there. Um, but I wrapped up in a blanket and was totally fine. So um, go over to Haven Tents and check that out. There will actually be a link for them in the show notes. So get out in there, click on that link, and check out what they have to offer over there. Um, so for the podcast today, um, Mike uh, had been talking to our friend Tony Blauer. And we have a seminar coming up soon with him. And Mike got to thinking about combatives and, and got to talking about it. And we were like, hey, why don't you go do a podcast on that while you've got all these good uh, thoughts and juices flowing. So Mike sat down to talk to you guys about his experience with combatives and kind of the role it plays in preparedness for you guys. So without further ado, guys, Mike Glover on combatives. Hey, what's going on, guys? So combatives. Um, I've actually done combatives before. Um, what I want to get back into, which I've done before, like years ago with Phil Craft Survival, is a little bit more technical on many blocks of instruction to, to get you interested in this idea of preparedness, um, more so than teaching you all the technicalities of things. Um, I like to teach a lot of concepts and ideas through the understanding of principle outside of philosophy. Like, yeah, sure, I'm going to have my opinion on things. But if I think I could provoke an idea or understanding about something important and you find interest in, it, in that, you're likely to seek more technical training, which is why I do these kind of podcasts in the short form. Short form to me is like 30, 40 minutes. So combatives is something that interestingly in the last couple months I've realized um, more so than I have before is a big gap in people's understanding of self-defense. 
you have a hundred different legitimate practitioners and professors, teachers, um, systems of combatives and martial arts, MMA type stuff. A lot of guys would argue that mixed martial arts in its current form is the best practicing self-defense tactic that's going to help you in real life. So you see a guy in the UFC and they're going head-to-head or toe-to-toe and one guy defeats the other guy in the octagon and the assumption is whatever that person knows that beat the other guy, that's the tactic that you should know. Um, Hence the popularity in a lot of ways of jiu-jitsu, Thai kickboxing, which I've taken both of, um, and the idea of mixed martial arts in its totality, like going to a place and working all the skill sets required to stand and hold your own and then be prepared to be taken to the ground and hold your own. The, The argument here is that that's not the right tactic to utilize in self-defense. Now, is it beneficial? Absolutely. There's a lot of things that are beneficial in life that have nothing to do with each other that complement each other. I mean, if you're a, a yoga practitioner and you know how to find your breath and reduce your stress, well, guess what? It's going to have a holistic um, benefit to everything in your life. But combatives is very different. I think when I, when I grew up in the military... Well, let's start before that. When I was a child, I grew up with Kung Fu movies. Um, Kung Fu, specifically Wing Chun Kung Fu, is like a gymnastic event in China. It's used as a demonstration of disciplines, but also a, a form of entertainment. So when you put that together in a script based on reality... It looks really cool. The problem is if you've ever tried to fight using Wing Chun or any kind of Kung Fu, you're not going to fare very well against somebody who, for example, knows how to, you know, knee in the clinch or create distance or for that matter, fight on the ground. So when we grow up, when I grew up, I thought that was the solution. Hey, you just know Kung Fu, you know how to work your hands, you know, different types of modules of the art. And then that's how you become better. Then I realized a lot of these martial arts were based in the execution of a sport, like a skilled, a technically skilled system that rates based off points. And so you take Taekwondo, for example, which I was a practitioner of Taekwondo. And it's an Olympic sport. And the, the pointing system um, is based off of strikes in certain sp- specific areas of your body. But that strike doesn't have to be a strike that could take you down. It could just be a touch. So, again, not conformed in reality or on the streets, more so in the... Uh, sport itself. When Bruce Lee came to the United States, he was a Kung Fu guy, a Wing Chun Kung Fu guy. But he started realizing in, 
I believe he started in San Francisco and a couple places in California, that the art, let's call it Kung Fu, was being confused with um, what was a skill set that you were capable of winning a street fight in. So he developed his own art, his own martial art, which is called Jeet Kune Do. I was re- really interested, obviously, I, I, was, I was behind um, Bruce Lee's time, but I was really, really interested in that concept and that idea that if you want to, you know, have a system or be the best, it's got to be this mixing of martial arts to be able to hone the best things from each specific form. So I think I was like 15, maybe 14. I started taking ninjutsu, which is the Japanese art form um, that has specific traits based in jujitsu. In fact, I believe Brazilian jujitsu, as we understand, it comes from a form of Japanese ninjutsu. I could be wrong. I'm not a martial arts expert, but I believe that's the case. And ninjutsu, we focused on weapons, knives, a bow, a bow staff, um, shurikens like ninja stars. I've actually taken training courses as a 15-year-old learning how to do century um, execution or assassination or, or taking out a century or guard. So I went to the military with a, 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 a pretty well-rounded background in combatives. And I'm using combatives as a holistic term of a whole bunch of th- different things. But in the infantry, as a 17-year-old, I was in the infantry from 17 to the age of 21. Four years in the infantry, we didn't have much as a practicing and applicable mixed martial art that related to combat. Well, one of those reasons is because at the time, in the 90s, we weren't in combat. But other specialized special operations units were doing that. In fact, when I took ninjutsu at 15, in Spring Lake, North Carolina, all of my instructors and even the owner of the dojo were Green Berets. So I, I actually learned martial arts and a lot of these things from active duty Green Berets who were teaching this in their team rooms in the 90s. So I was very surprised when I went to the regular army, the infantry of the regular ar- army, uh, differentiating regular versus special. And there was no combatives program structure or anything and then the global war and terror kicked off with 9-11 so we start going to war we have men uh women um military service members who are finding themselves in urban areas that are built up and confined spaces going hand to hand in some cases with enemy combatants so the desire and the need for more relevant systems that are applicable in real life came to light. Um, Fast forward, getting through special operations training. In the special forces qualification course, we are experimenting at Special Warfare Center, which is the schoolhouse for all Green Berets. We're experimenting with a program called LINES. Now, LINES derived from the U.S. Marine Corps via... I believe the guy's guy's name is Don Vito, who 
was the combatives instructor, primary instructor for creating the program lines for the Marines. So Special Warfare Center said, hey, let's let's pick something that's going to be applicable to these guys because right now we don't have much. So we decided to run the lines program. When I went through the Q course as a requirement for my MOS or my job specialty, I took the lines instructor course, which allowed me to be line certified to be able to teach my team guys um, to be trained in this art, this uh, program. Coming from a background in jujitsu and martial arts, I found the program very flawed, inherently flawed. And look, no offense to Don Vito and the program because it is very applicable to certain people in certain positions. Um, I, I think as a baseline, just like I think children should grow up in Taekwondo or some martial art to form discipline, um, you know, moral value and courage. I also think that military members should have a baseline as well. But being a cognitive, you know, very high functioning operator in special operations, I thought lines was not the right program. Um, I, I won't even get into the weeds on it because there's many. But I'll just say that I thought there, there could be better. Uh, as I evolved in special operations, we started seeing different programs. One of those programs was Tony Blower's Spear System. I think my first exposure to that was when me and Kevin Owens went to Sephardic, which is Special Forces Advanced Target Interdiction and Acquisition or something like that. It's a long acronym. It's been a while. But that course was basically CQB, Close Quarters Battled, Hostage Rescue, um, the certification course for Green Berets. It allowed us to operate with task force, a joint task force um, in special operations, and also be members as a minimum requirement of the commanders in extremist force. So the first thing that I remember is we learn close the distance as a drill. And it's it's pretty self-explanatory you have a bad guy who's going to pummel you and you have a good guy and you have to be able to counter defend um, via a rhino block in this case which is basically driving your elbows um, in front of your face to understand the concept that in some instances in closing the distance you're going to take blows you're going to get hit and that's just accepted risk. So I didn't realize this until we did this drill, but I didn't realize how many people, how many men in this case, and special forces specifically, didn't have, didn't have any experience in taking blows to the head. I thought it was just something you did. At this point, I had um, been taking Thai kickboxing locally, uh, even some MMA, and was already a practicing jiu-jitsu guy. A B actually I was under Machado, so it was a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy. All right guys, we're gonna interrupt this podcast for just a second to talk to you about one of our sponsors. And that sponsor is Bespoke Post. 
this spring as you're getting back to the outdoors to explore, hang out with your family and your friends and do those spring activities. Take bespoke posts on all your adventures with the all new lineup of essential box of awesome collection for all you guys out there. It's guaranteed to upgrade your life. Uh, whether you're into taming the wilderness or taking your home bar to the pro level heights, bespoke post sends guys the best stuff every month, no matter what you're into. Box of Awesome has you covered. From style and grooming goods to barware, cooking tools, and outdoor gear, Box of Awesome has collections for every part of your life. They release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. It's free for you to sign up, and you can skip a month or even cancel at any time. Each box is only going to cost you $45, but has $70 value for each box that they send out. Get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter code FIELDCRAFT at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com, code FIELDCRAFT for 20% off your first box. All right, guys, back to the podcast. So when I saw this, I realized, hey, there's no programs. And specifically, there were no programs for guys who were going into houses as a job. Not to meet and greet people, but to kill people. Like, good guys go do CQB because they want to win speed, surprise, and violence of action on the objective. That's what a raid is, a direct action raid. The problem is, well, the problem is many. There's many variables that are involved. But one of the problems that you run into is being physically confronted with somebody before you even have the ability to potentially engage them. Also, there's a discrimination issue as well because you have to discriminate friend from foe. And that could happen in darkness, under stress, looking through tubes of black and green in night vision. So in CQB, in Sephardic specifically, I started learning about... um, what were the tactics available for us when we ran into people? Imagine you go through a point of domination, which is simply a doorway, and you step into the left of that doorway, and you go to clear your point of domination. Uh, in this case, the left corner. And before you drive the barrel of your gun into that corner, a guy grabs the muzzle of your carbine, your 14.5 to 10.5 inch carbine. What do you do? Well, most people in that circumstance and my you know, field of expertise would say you shoot them. Uh, and generally speaking, that's the case because you're not, you're not, you're not raiding uh, innocent people's homes. You're doing it based off of intelligence that leads you to an operation, which is kicking in a high-value target's door. So somebody grabs your gun, the likelihood of them wanting to combat and potentially kill you are high, and our rules of engagement support that engagement to use deadly force. Especially countering the insurgents that we are encountering. Who like to kill themselves, by the way. So, having a tactic available for you. Uh, a muzzle strike. A spear tactic. Something is important. What I've realized over the course of a long career in special operations is there's not one end-all, be-all solution. There's many. The reason there's not an end-all, be-all solution, by the way, is not because of the negligence of instructors or professors who do it for a living, but the simple understanding of it's not that simple. It's not that easy. 
when you have a duty and responsibility in your job and role, there's a lot of variables. So having one solution like, hey, you just muzzle strike the guy. Well, what if the guy's a 75-year-old man? So you have technical understanding of the mechanics of things you need to do. And then you blend it with a cognitive understanding of how to think through different things to do. This hybrid blend, um, almost out, when I say it out loud, almost seems foreign. I, I, look, you're, com- you're talking to a guy who lives in the tactical space, or you're listening to a guy in this case. But I feel like the tactical space, including combatives, is inherently flawed. Because we're focused on the wrong thing. The way this works physiologically is the world that we live in is based off of models and scripts that we have developed and that we write. So the concept is, um, I'm Asian, so I like to take my shoes off before I go into the house. Every morning when I go to the front of the house where all the shoes are, I don't have to seek out direction or get instructions of an understanding of what the collection of shoes are because I have a model for that. Just as you have a model for your home, for the bathroom layout, for your car, we develop these models to navigate the physical movement through that space, not overtaxing our cognition, meaning having to think through everything. Once we build that model, we also write scripts. The writing of the script, for example, is brushing your teeth in the morning. If you're like me, you multitask. I mean, you're taking a shower brushing your teeth. Uh, you're brushing your teeth, checking your phone. You're doing all kinds. It's like that lady who's putting on mascara in the mirror in her car while she's driving. That's just how it happens. We have a model and then we have a script. So the beneficial thing of how we navigate our world is we could be taught the most optimized script to succeed in the model. That's why we do CQB or close quarters battle training. It's why we isolate specific scenarios or situations in the house. Center fed, corner fed, hallways, stairwells, breaching options at the door, breaching tactics at the door, actions on contingencies, communication, I mean, man, I can go down a rabbit hole. So the reason that's important to understand is because 99% of the industry is only focused on writing the script, on the actions of building this idea of muscle memory. If Tony Blower heard this, which he probably will, he'll tell you there's no such thing as muscle memory, and he's, he's right. There's no memory in your muscle, only a hijacking of executive functions and things that you revert to via your experiences and training. So the reason I bring this up is because understand this. If you pay $300 to $500 and you go to a training course and the only thing you do is shoot holes in paper with bullets, by the way, that are expensive, then you're not getting the full grasp of the benefit of training in the first place. So here's how we'll break this down a little bit is there is technical training that 
builds this script and allows you to operate fluidly in mechanics, which optimizes speed and efficiency. That's why we brush our our teeth very efficiently and effectively. We don't have to learn it from scratch. We have a lot of reps doing that. You want that. But let me give you an example that I just recently experienced without ruining the scenario. If I told you I wanted you to shoot a target based on a scenario that I gave you from the draw, outside or inside the waistband, and you had to decide in your head when the appropriate time was to shoot that target, then you are truly assessing your threshold for making a decision under stress. So a little bit of background on that. That's not common to all, meaning not everybody thinks the same because we have different life experiences. We have different triggers. We understand to comprehend things differently because of our aptitude. So if I said there's a shadowy lurking figure walking through your living room and you see the outline of that shadow and you draw your pistol and you shoot, but then I told you when you turn on the lights because the scenario continues that that shadowy figure was your spouse. What would that make you do? Well, the problem in training is we're not focused on that decision-making process, which is the most important aspect of self-defense. So where does the combatist tie in? Well, when me and Tony Blower had this conversation, I realized something and, and Here's something you'll figure out about me really fast is I'm not afraid to hone in on a a mistake. My mistake, um, my company's mistakes, uh, people's mistakes. Maybe I'm I'm the butthole who calls people out. But what that means is I'm not afraid of making the mistake and correcting uh, courses of action immediately so I don't continue to make those mistakes. So a mistake I've been making for a long time is not giving you an option or a solution and how this works via a training course or a training experience. It doesn't have to be an actual course like in person, but it needs to be something. So Tony Blauer in our conversation said to me, he goes, he said this term soft hand skills and it'll stick with me forever. I'm probably going to steal it. Thanks, Tony. But soft hand skills is the idea that We train, the tactical space and industry trains people to go from a complete relaxed posture to engaging a threat accurately with speed very effectively in programs and training curriculum and doctrine. But what about all the things prior to that? I actually give this case example in classes. I'll, uh, I'll always talk about this idea of the uh, retracted gun. Some people call it the uh, depressed gun. Some people call it the contact shot. It's taking your pistol and pulling it away from the front of your core or your body to not give away the barrel so it could be grabbed and taken away from you. So it's basically shooting depressed at your hip 
So that way you could clear space to make contact. In this case, the contact is a firearm or the round in the firearm. The problem with this is you'll see guys doing it on social media. They'll hashtag it looks cool. They'll shoot the rubber dummy. They'll shoot the target and they, they show their part time. They feel accomplished. But I've asked people before, what is your criteria for contact shooting somebody? I said, let's give you this example. You're in a bar and a guy's at the bar and he spits in your face and he's head to head with you. I've seen it. I've actually experienced it. He spits in your face and you have a pistol. Are you going to contact shoot him? Well, no, no, Mike, I wouldn't do that. So then the guy headbutts you. You can actually kill somebody with a headbutt. He headbutts you on the bridge of your nose and breaks your nose. You're still conscious. You're still aware. Do you contact shoot him? Well, I think in that case, I might do that. Huh. Interesting. Well, you did that, and the guy died. And five of his buddies were surrounding him, and they're all witnesses to your act. No CCTV cameras. And they all reported that you were the antagonizer, that you intentionally antagonized that fight, and that you headbutted him. And then after your headbutt, in an offensive action, you drew your pistol because you were bloodthirsty and you killed him. You murdered him. Likelihood, minimum manslaughter. 7 to 10, 10 to 20, maybe even life in prison. We're not thinking about our actions when we're defining our actions as being deadly force. So Kevin Owens was just in the room with me and we're just talking briefly before this podcast and he mentioned that Kevin Estella had told him a story. And the story was a man closing the distance with a knife. And instead of the police officer focusing on the intention of mitigating the risk to his life via an order of things that he could use in his toolbox, in this case, his hands, or even physical movement, he fought to get back to his gun, which I've taught academies before. And the first thing I do with new um, students, if you want to teach them good lessons and combatives, as you te- teach them the protocol and defending and protecting their gun while you punch them in the face. Because if you're a threat to them, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to take their right hand, if they're right-handed, and put it over their gun to protect it, which is giving up a hand in defense. And then you left hook them in the face. Then they lift their hand, and then you go for your, their gun. Then they go back to their gun with both hands, and then you headbutt them in the face. Now, this is in blower suits. This is in combatives, isolated training. But you get the point. The point is your brain, your cognitive function, your ability to make decisions under stress is the number one tool to mitigate risk. But again, the tactical space in industry, because it doesn't business model or scale very well, is to go for the gun, the one second split time. Well, that's going to be one second in time that changes your life forever. I'm not arguing against training. I'm actually advocating for it, but I'm also advocating for the idea of smarter training. One thing that we're going to do is on 30 May, 1 April, we're going to bring in Tony Blower to have a seminar 
about fear. Not the fear as you egomaniacs might know it, meaning you don't feel fear, but I mean the fear that you have to manage that's subconscious, that's in the back of your mind, that controls a lot of physiological things that take place in function of senses and physical function. It's all related. He's also going to do a spear program teaser. I say teaser because you can learn a lot from Tony. He'll teach you a lot in a brief period of time, uh, capturing that attention, all that he can and optimizing an opportunity. We're giving him eight hours, a full day. So he's going to introduce you to spear, which is a very effective tactic in taking advantage of something that's going to happen to you called the fear flinch response. Tony Blower, I used to listen to and, and um, was very much a practitioner and follower of his tactics when I was a special operations guy. The fact that could bring him in here at Philcraft HQ in Hebrew City is amazing. And we'll take full opportunity of that. Podcast, as much information as we could disseminate so you understand in totality how important it is. Guys, thanks for the podcast. Hope you enjoyed this 30-minute experience. I, I, I love being on time. I'm at 29 and 12 seconds. Usually I dance, but you won't be able to see me. So I'll just let it go. Thanks, guys.